The new evangelization isn't just a pastoral work, it's also an intellectual work, a work for the mind as well as the heart, for scholars and preachers, but also for lay Catholics. Today we'll discuss the intellectual work of the new evangelization with Dr. John Cavadini, Professor of Theology and the Director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Strategic Relations at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Strategic Relations here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. We'll be talking about the new evangelization today with Dr. John Cavadini. I'm joined in our studios with our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, uh, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology in the New Evangelization, again here at Franciscan University. And we're happy to welcome Dr. John Cavadini, uh, your professor of theology for 29 years, give or take, uh, at, uh, at Notre Dame, as well as the director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Uh, you've, you've edited and worked on, on, on numerous books, uh, but you have been on the member, uh, member of the International Theological Commission under Pope Benedict XVI, as well as Pope Francis. Uh, you have two masters, a PhD from Yale, and, uh, and work in, in many areas. You have a, uh, your most recent work is on Mary on the eve of the Second Vatican Council. Um, and it is a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, we love uh, having you here at, at Franciscan, but today we're talking about the new evangelization. And maybe it's, it, <clears throat> although it seems like it's an easy, uh, easy thing, maybe we should just decide what is the definition of the new evangelization? Uh, what does that look like and how would you define it? Sure, probably people would define it differently, but <clears throat> I, would def I would, I think about it as evangelization, especially in a context where the faith has receded from people's hearts, where um, it's receded from people's minds, mm -hmm. where in a sense, um, you, you could use the word post-Christian of the society, perhaps. So the new evangelization is intended to, I guess you could say, try to speak to such cultures, such societies. And um, Pope Francis says we need to go out to the, the peripheries. Right. And I think sometimes we think of peripheries as geographical, but peripheries are also peripheries of the heart. Mm. Um, you know, you find them in students, students who really wonder if the church has any relevance to them. It's not even so much they don't like the church. It's just a kind of distance, and they reflect the, the, the cultural distance away from the church. So that's you're, talking, kind of you're talking about students at Notre Dame. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, this is true everywhere, but I mean, the very fact that you could say that, and it would be applicable to students who go to the University of Notre Dame, I think is the sign that this is everywhere else yeah. as well. Yes, yes. So we need a new evangelization in that. Yeah, 50% yeah, of whom come from Catholic schools, so... Right. Well, John, is, uh, is this something we should deplore, that the evangelization now has to be new? We can't presuppose anything? Or is that really an advantage? Because in a way, we've gone back to the beginning, the absolute newness of, of the gospel, That's uh, the herald. 
That's absolutely right. Yeah, the, the New Testament is new always. It's not. Yeah. Mm. It's not really necessarily new relative to the old. Even it is, but yeah. but the newness never goes away. Right. And yeah. Jesus Christ, yesterday, today, and forever. So in some way, it's propounding something which is ever new. Yeah. So there's no baggage. I mean, a residue of of Catholic uh, cultural life. All of that has been liquidated. We're 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 starting fresh. Uh, just, you know, de novo, uh, a blank sheet of paper, and you can put on it the whole template of the gospel. Is that, is that why it's good? Well, I can, yeah, in one way that's it's true, but of course we're, 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 gonna, we're trying to bring forward the whole tradition and make it, yeah. and, and, and make it, make it live, make it able, it does live, but make it live for people for whom it seems to have died. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a special challenge because they have baggage, you might say, or they have caricatures. Like a lot of my teaching is just releasing people from, releasing students from caricatures and in adult ed, the same thing. So many people have so much baggage and it's not even true. Mm, right. And, and, they don't need, and they don't know the riches of the church. They don't know the, the depth. It's kind of like the church is this huge ca um, capital for the imagination. And all of it is like occluded, nobody sees it. And part of the job, I think, of the new evangelization is releasing that capital mm. for the imagination, mm. spiritual wisdom that's, that's there, yeah. and yet it's, it, it's, it's been forgotten or it's distorted. Yeah. You know, this is a, a subtle shift in strategy, I, th I think, you know, because before Vatican II, a lot of the publications I find were apologetic. You know, they were defending. And there's a good, I mean, that's a really important thing. It isn't as though we don't need apologetics. But, you know, it, it puts you on the defensive, you know, because then you're always responding to Protestants or to other groups, agnostics, nowadays the new atheism. But, you know, so often the best defense is a good offense. And so, again, Notre Dame. Uh, <laughs> but the new evangelization, you know, really does kind of put our best foot forward. It's putting the good news and giving us an opportunity to kind of present this New Testament, this, you know, how Christ makes all things new. And I... And I think, you know, it's not only fitting with Vatican II, it, it really is fitting with the nature of the Catholic faith. You know, something that you wrote on the new evangelization, calling forth a new apologetic, so that it's not just logical, historical, philosophical, it really shows that the inner logic of the gospel is love, divine love. Yeah. And suddenly it's like, even Catholics who didn't leave or stop practicing are going to look and see something new. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, just to kind of give you, open this, this topic up for us a little bit. Um, when we think about um, kind of the evangelicals, and they, they have, there's so much that we can in some ways admire uh, with their zeal and their fervor. Um, but what, what's kind of your perspective or, or Catholic perspective looking at what that means for us as Catholics? Uh, can we learn something from them? Is there things that are um, pitfalls uh, as we look at our, our separated brethren as our evangelical brothers? in light of the new evangelization? Yeah, this is a good question. I, I think about it a lot because uh, in some ways I feel convicted by the uh, example of evangelical lay people, all of them are lay people, yeah. who, um, who are willing to go on mission trips and willing to, um, although sometimes they go on mission trips to convert Catholics. Right, right. So, I mean, this is, but who, who, are, who are willing to take these tasks of evangelization on. On the other hand, I think, Catholics really, I don't know, shouldn't really have evangelical envy um, because I think in, in a lot of ways so much of Catholic evangelization is tied in with the sacraments 
Uh, it's not simply an appeal to feeling. It's not simply zeal is good, but zeal for its own sake doesn't really help. The Catholic formation occurs at the liturgy. It occurs in the sacraments. It occurs in helping people to understand what the sacraments are. And it occurs in the, in the encounter with Jesus, which is not just personal, one-on-one, me and Jesus is my personal Savior. The encounter with Jesus is ecclesial is through the bounds of the church, and the bonds of the church are the blood of Christ. That's what holds the church together. And sometimes, I think, um, we forget. You can, you can almost absorb the critique that the church as mediator gets in the way. But that's, if you just think about it for another second, the, the, um, the, the metaphor, not the metaphor, but the, the image of the church as the body of Christ, and the image of the church as the spouse, these are images of great intimacy. Mm-hmm. So, the mediation isn't a means of distancing. It would be almost like saying, well, you know, when I'm with my, when I'm with my spouse, my, my body kind of gets in the way of all this, <laughs> of all this intimacy. Um, and I'd really like to have just sort of like a spiritual connection. But it's precisely the body that mediates intimacy and makes it more intimate. Yeah, yeah. So the image of the body of Christ or the... Um, the, um, the spouse of Christ, those images are not images of distance. And the thing about Catholic evangelization, or the, even the new evangelization, is that we forget that people, people don't, don't have in their minds the meaning of those images. And so the idea of the new evangelization is some, in some way to recover the meaning of the image body of Christ, or the bride of Christ, mm. as images of great intimacy. So you don't end up um, you don't end up trading off some kind of personal intimacy, which maybe we can come together and share uh, at church, from a kind of um, from the sacramental in- in- intimacy that comes with being incorporated in the one body. That's the most intimate thing I can think of. My flesh is incorporated one flesh union with the flesh of Christ. That's why the church is, is the bride, um, also the, the body. So that in my person, as baptized, I, I have, because of the ecclesial incorporation, an intimate association with Jesus Christ, which is, of course, consummated in the Eucharist. So the, the, um, the, the biggest mistake, I think, that Catholics could make in trying to follow evangelical evangelization is to accept that split mm-hmm. between, yes. um, between individual intimacy and the intimacy that is in irreducibly mediated by the one body, by membership in the one body. Right. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, because it's really, I think that it's a false dichotomy. That Absolutely. Often gets set up, you know? but it's, it's the whole principle, really, of incarnation. I mean, how in the name of heaven did heaven come into history? How did God reach man? It wasn't by ideas. He didn't send memos. There wasn't an internet connection. It was the Word made flesh. Right. He, he assumed a body which has weight and extension, and the prolongation of that body we call the church, his bride. And the, the temptation today is to, to try to have, I mean, the sort of mirror image of, in a way, evangelicalism is um, the idea of, the secular ideal of um, spirituality without religion. Because in yeah. a sense, the religion, it's the same structural thing. The religion gets in the way. You know, even evangelical leaders and major voices are recognizing this. As they, as they back into the tradition, they recognize the sacraments. And then they look at what they have as a personal relationship with Jesus. But one of the leading voices says, you know, uh, we ought to stop dating Jesus. 
you know, because that's yeah. what they're seeing yeah. in their own circles, that mm. they have a kind of dating relationship, a personal yeah. relationship. And then a reviewer I read said, actually, you know, we, we were actually cohabiting. You know, there is no <laughs> sacramental bond. That's beautiful, you know? though. They understand that. But conversely, you know, you flip it around and you recognize that many people who do have that sacramental bond of marital intimacy don't have joy. They might be miserable or lonely or estranged from the spouse. And this is precisely why the new evangelization for us as Catholics can be so Catholic because the sacrament is there whether the joy and the intimacy are. And that is precisely what God will Used to kind of release the grace to make up for what we lack. Right, right. I'm always I'm always impressed when you kind of you said the, the, the fervor uh, and some of the the, the missionary uh, spirit of, of evangelicals, but it, it's the false sense that we as Catholics think, oh, therefore we should just adopt that with whole cloth without understanding. Right. There's really beauty to having a theological understanding of what the new evangelization is, rooted in, in a, a beauty, beautiful understanding of the ecclesiology and, and understanding the, the body of Christ. I mean, we could use more zeal. Oh, of course. I mean, yeah, but not emotionalism. No, no. And I was no. just looking at Ronald Knox's study on enthusiasm, which he spent decades researching and yeah. finally published. You know, And his conclusion, to paraphrase, is that nothing significant is accomplished by enthusiasm. Right. But nothing significant is accomplished without, without it. it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that's so important. <laughs> and that's the blending that I've, I've found here, uh, you know, is this dynamic orthodoxy where you've yeah. got the life, you've got the joy, you've got a witness of, 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 of complete life transformed by Christ, personally deciding, but then also steeped in who we are as a church, as the body of Christ. And you know, it's but, a curious thing about that book when Knox set out to write it. He wanted to blast right. the proponents of, of enthusiasm, but by the end, of, of years and years of patient, meticulous research, he comes around to think, you know, this is a pretty good thing, yeah. but it needs to be a channeled, sacramentalized yeah. institution. It's necessary, indispensable, right. but right. subordinate. And the fact is, as Catholics, we have more to be zealous about, but it also is such that the sacraments give us a different kind of zeal. I mean, somebody impressing a gal on a first date is not going to be zealous the same way a couple celebrating their 50th anniversary. Absolutely. You know, they're quiet. Yeah. Well, they're probably in a nursing home. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. But, I mean, I, you know, I think I think if you if you if you accept the evangelical model too much, it, it plays into young people, who who are too, young people's like I think I mean it's natural to have to want some kind of intense experience, of course. Mm -hmm. But um, if you reduce religion to that sort of intense experience. You basically are inviting a kind of superficiality. The, the the image of the spouse is is important, like you're bringing up, because marriages could not could not exist on on if you think that it won't last long. If you think that every moment is a peak experience That's and true. that you're going to go from one to the other It'll and burn out. nothing else, because you're going to be disappointed and you're going to think you're a failure and then you're going to quit. And yeah. it seems to me that the Eucharistic or sacramental spirituality is one which which is willing to endure a long time without necessarily the feeling of um of of without of, without a, without an experience i mean think of mother Teresa, all that darkness right. um but that was a deep deep on another level experience of love and i even think of the blessed sacrament you know i walk into a chapel hoping that um somehow Something's going to happen to me. Yeah. And it's like Jesus is inside there thinking, oh, John, you want something to happen to you? You want something interesting? Well, try this. I'm inside a tabernacle um, under the form of an inert piece of matter. You think that's interesting? It's not interesting at all. <laughs> but I'm doing it for you. I'm here for you. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. 
Stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. The Lord Jesus came to bring us into communion with the Father and into communion with each other. And this uh, serves as a, a fantastic clue for us, guiding us in the execution of, of the new evangelization and the preaching of the gospel, for it makes us to realize that our proclamation of the truth, truth must be situated in that context of communion, which is really the context of love, right? So that we realize uh, we must not only seek to instruct, to seek to proclaim the truth of the gospel, but really to seek that unity with other people, uh, the unity that we have in Christ. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking with Dr. John Cavadini about the new evangelization. Uh, John, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit in the last segment, um, but I want you to unpack a little bit more about apologetics and some of its strengths and maybe some of its uh, challenges or weaknesses there. Sure. I, um, I practice apologetics just like Scott said. <laughs> he does. So I'm a fan, uh, but I think in some ways you can, you can if, you, if you don't approach it properly, you, you, you end up in a sense, uh, doing the opposite. Like I was just talking about how you can have too much focus on feeling and experience. You can also have so much focus on intellect that it's, it's odd for a university professor to say this, but it's true. You can have so much focus on intellect that you end up reducing the faith to reason, yeah. which of course is uh, the opposite error, you might say. And so what is the role of argumentation in apologetics? I like to think about it this way. It's kind of, if you, think, if, you can, if you can picture an icon of the face of Christ, and if you can think of it as having had, you know, over, the, over, the, over the centuries, an old one, let's say, um, but beautiful, dirt, accumulated dirt and grime, etc., the arguments are like help um, removing that dirt, sort of taking the grime that's accumulated for, for centuries off of the face of the icon, so that that face shows through. Mm. And then the what leverages conversion is, or continuing conversion is not the arguments. The arguments um, enable you to see, have that face most clearly, and that encounter is what leverages conversion, the encounter with the mystery of the person of Christ mm. in all of his facets and dimensions. So if, if um, Origen, in his mo the famous apology against Celsus, you know, says that um, the best apology was Christ's silence before his accusers. Mm -hmm. And that's, a, that's an astonishingly beautiful passage because what it means is that Jesus didn't reduce himself to the terms of the accusation, but by his silence asked everyone to reflect on his whole life. The mystery of that life, that's the, um, that, the mystery of that life and that person is what will convert you. That's he does. Yeah. He does write eight books of arguments. He goes on to do that. Yes. Which is substantial. <laughs> Very right. substantial. But, but, but 
That is all by way of um, erasing, erasing the dirt and the grime off the icon so that, you, so that it shines forth for someone yeah. in its beauty. Well, yeah, this, this has an obvious analog, I think, in human life. There are certain experiences which are ineffable, uh, and you are struck dumb, reduced to a kind of sacred silence, because speech would profane uh, the beauty of, and, and richness and intimacy of, of, of the other, the experience. So I think the silence of Jesus does inspire speech, but we have to acknowledge all of these words are meant to testify to a single, uh, irreducible word, and in in the presence of that word, the most appropriate attitude is one of adoration, adoring mm. silence. And you're right about the arguments. Uh, that's the grime that you have to somehow wash away. Uh, I remember when I first went to Rome, uh, there was this grimy church, mm -hmm. and, and it really put me off. It was distracting, but it was so damn hot that day <laughs> that I took refuge inside anyway. I peel away uh, the dust and the grime, and suddenly this apparition of transcendent beauty, Bernini's a sculpture of, of St. Teresa of Avila uh, in ecstasy, the transverberation. If I hadn't been curious, and that's really the whole purpose of argument, to, to provoke a curiosity, uh, to get people to think and to pursue, to ask questions, if I hadn't cut through all of that grime uh, and, and dirt, I would not have seen this ecstasis of, of the saint who was inspired herself by the silence of Jesus. Mm. You know, really well. I was just reading C.S. Lewis who spoke of his own experience of how he struggled more with the mysteries of faith that he had just successfully defended. Mm. Yeah. You know, that when you have mm. this great delivery, then you go back and you, you're tempted to think that its, its truth is dependent upon my rhetorical capacity. That's right. You know, and I, 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 when I read that, I'm like, that is so true. So often the mysteries of the Eucharist, if you're lecturing on them, you, know, you really have to kind of go back to a childlike encounter, you know? And apologetics, again, I want to reinforce the point, has a value. But I think people oh, yeah. assume, because I'm associated with apologetics, that, you know, I must resent the fact that apologetics has been eclipsed by what is now called fundamental theology. But actually, you know, I taught fundamental theology enough to realize that apologetics always had that temptation or that tendency towards incipient rationalism. Mm -hmm. where you really end up thinking, or at least acting like, you know, you can prove practically all of the mysteries of faith when you can't prove a single one. I mean, you can make them credible. You know, the distinction that there is no rational demonstration for the mysteries of faith, or they wouldn't be mysteries, but there's a rational justification for making the act of faith, the motives of credibility and all of that. But even that distinction blurs the fact that fundamental theology lays the fundamentum, the foundation. So reason can kind of clear away the boulders and the stumps that lie in the way, but faith has to lay that foundation and then erect the cathedral of faith. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that this adjustment is actually what opens up a vista, a, a way of understanding that the only foundation that you can build upon is Christ, who is love incarnate. Yeah. And then suddenly you're like, that's a much better foundation right. than arguments for the existence of God, as valuable as they may be, and all of that. Yeah, right. yeah. And, and reason is essential uh, in understanding, but it is not sufficient uh, in that. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. I mean, faith goes beyond reason correct. by a lot, yeah. but it doesn't go against it, and you have to show that it's not going against it. Yeah. 
but you can't stop there. That's a means to an end, and that's the icon. Yeah. So l let's go to a, a little different topic. As we look at uh, the role of the new evangelization, we're talking to, to, to teachers and scholars and uh, pastors and preachers, as well as just lay Catholics. Um, what role uh, does sacred scripture play in the life of in the, in the new evangelization, for those who are called to be evangelists, uh, what, what role should sacred scripture um, uh, play in that? As well as even the, the fathers, uh, as we go deeper into uh, understanding the new evangelization. Sacred scripture really plays an essential role. Um, people, people like scripture. Uh, and I, I think the the Catechism kind of gives us a great model here, which might not sound like that's the place to go, but uh, if, you, if you read the Catechism, you'll see that it's infused with Scripture. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, Scripture isn't just present to back up doctrinal assertions, but the Scripture is present to, to um, make those assertions, to help make them anyway. So uh, instead of defining the Incarnation at a certain point, it just quotes, and the Word became flesh from the Gospel right. of John. Yeah, right. So you've got you've got a catech you've got a dogmatic catechesis that's scripturally infused, and so the scripture lives, you might say, and makes the dogmatic catechesis live because it's the living word of God and the breath of the Holy Spirit. But the other way around is that if you just throw scripture out, um, it's not it's 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 shapeless in a sense, right. unless you you shape it according to the rule of faith, or according to the creed, which actually brings out the essence of Scripture. The, the, the important point, I think, to remember, never lose sight of it, because that, that ends you up in Protestantism. Uh, there is something that transcends Scripture. It points to something greater than itself, namely Christ. The revelation is Christ, not Scripture, not tradition. But he does deposit that revelation in Scripture, but he's not exhausted by it. I mean, there's still more to say. That was the point John of the Cross made. He said, once Jesus spoke his word, he didn't have any other word to speak. It's inexhaustible. We never come to an end of it. And the scriptures cannot uh, exhaust this word, but they do represent a privileged point of, of, of entry into the mystery. If they don't draw you into the mystery, then get rid of them. Yeah, that, that element of mystery, I think, is so present in scripture, but it's can, it can be overlooked, you know, especially in scholarship. Uh, but when you look at the word incarnated and then the word inspirated, you know, you can see how the inspired word participates in the very mystery it's communicating. Yeah. But if you're cut off from that mystery, then you're really kind of just lost without a compass. And I also think that uh, people approach Scripture and they don't recognize how much it reflects not only Christ, who is fully divine and fully human, but the humility of divinity. The fact that, okay, he's, he's born into the royal line of David, but put in a manger, you know, in occupied territory. He wasn't born into the line of Caesars, you know. Mm -hmm. And the humility of the word incarnate is also there in sort of the rhetorical lack, you know, that, that it's too human to be divine. It's too Hebrew to be profound. But I think God meets us more in the lowliness of Christ and Scripture. And I think um, it's important to remember, I, I'm a little bit worried now that the Old Testament completely drops out of, hmm. of Catholic sensibility and sensitivity. I think that's a, that's a mistake because um, they, people have objections, cultural objections against the Old Testament. Right. The God is violent right. or whatever. 
So it's very important to use the Old Testament from the perspective of the Gospel, which recapitulates it. I'll give you an example. Um, the passage where um, the three visitors come to the tent of to Abraham's tent and just kind of hang out there and chew the fat and the fat in the heat of the day. It's such a beautiful passage. If you if you p- walk people through it and show people how sophisticated it is actually and how and how it's illuminated if you see it from the perspective of the incarnation. Because in the end, the three visitors who don't need to eat but they accept it's it's the lowering of it's God's bending down to us and when um, when they give the promise and Sarah laughs yeah. They, they chide her. They don't, I mean, they, you did laugh. <laughs> but the thing is, it's, if you think about it, it's the way in which God has made himself already in that passage laughable. He's bent down and put himself in a position where someone could really laugh at him. Right. And that's the foolishness. That's, you know, an adumbration of the foolishness of Christ. Right. The foolishness of God, which is... Um, which is smarter than human wisdom. I forget the first, first Corinthians. First it's Corinthians, my favorite right. passage. <laughs> but, but it's a beautiful passage. But but people often just leave the Old Testament out or treat it treat it as though it really has no connection with the new. Right. And it seems to me that's that's a mistake because then it then you forget yeah. the um, continuity of Revelation and also the the, um, the the just the beauty of, of many of those Old Testament yeah. passages. It help people see in a sense. Through their simplicity, their sophistication. Yeah, it, the, it's the amazing condescension of God, which yes. the scriptures signpost on practically every page. I, I think of that lovely line from Hopkins, infinity dwindled to infancy. I mean, God squeezing himself into a womb. I mean, go figure. And then that <laughs> lovely image you had of going to the Blessed Sacrament and Jesus sort of telling you, you think you're having a problem. <laughs> Look at me, I'm inside this. I'm a prisoner and I'm asking you to visit me uh, and, and maybe we can chat. <laughs> I mean, that's astounding. Yeah, yeah. And, and so as we look for an evangelist, then, you know, St. Jerome's obviously uh, quote here, uh, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. And as an evangelist, we need to have that. But that we also have the gift of the fathers. Um, as as uh, What would you recommend? Are there, are there certain fa- church fathers that you would recommend reading, um, you know, particularly as we, we look at this from a, a really going deeper in the new evangelization. Well, I recommend reading all the fathers. <laughs> I just Origen himself has a beautiful meditation on the um, on the incarnation and how how Jesus could how how the the word of God of immeasurable majesty could have been thought to have entered into a woman's womb. And even the worst thing for a sort of platonically inclined theologian worse than the cross in a sense because at least you can die nobly but that he uttered crying noises like those of all other little children like that's an amazing self-emptying but i think to answer your question more directly sometimes it's more helpful to start not with the fathers directly but with someone who uses the fathers well for example pope benedict in his jesus of nazareth second volume where he brings in Augustine's exegesis of the Psalms as he's expositing the, um, the Passion of the Lord. It's a, it's a genius okay. redeployment of Augustine. And so from there, you can branch out to reading the, the, um, the sermons on the Psalms that he, that he cites themselves. And so that's a good way to get into it, I think. Okay. And Maximus on the Prayer of Gethsemane that Ratzinger also cites, Pope Benedict. Oh, I forgot yeah. that. Yeah. You know, the... Um, the catechism is itself scripturally saturated, yeah. but it also is has a patristic saturation yeah. too. And it's not just proof texting the fathers either. It really is a, a beautiful integration. Yeah. Stay with us on the next segment of Franciscan Presents. 
a lot of people ridicule the idea of piety and evangelization being compatible with doing academic, serious theology in the classroom or in the research uh, study. But uh, that couldn't be more wrong. I'll tell you why. In theology, our object of study is not something beneath us, like uh, biological things or we dissect a cat in a lab. Uh, nor is our object equal to us, like in anthropology we study humans. Rather, our object is exalted, the infinite triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course, in our discipline in the classroom, we have to talk a lot about God and think a lot about God, but more fundamental to that, because it's sacred theology, we have to talk to God and even more importantly, listen to God. In order to do that, you have to be evangelized. You have to believe the gospel that the Father sent His Son to die on the cross, save us from our sins, set up the church as the means of salvation. So not only is evangelization, and piety for that matter, compatible with this academic, robust study of sacred theology, but it's absolutely essential. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University here in Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, we're recording this right now in our communication arts studios here at uh, Franciscan University. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment and in the control room. Our panelists are professors here at Franciscan University. Uh, we've been talking to uh, Dr. John Cavadini, author and teacher. Um, you mentioned in, in a number of places about this idea of the, the apologetic of love. What does that mean? Yeah, thanks. Uh, the apologetics of love is a concept that I've been trying to work with for the last 15 years <laughs> in my classes um, and otherwise. But the idea of it essentially is love, love is its own apology. Love is its own defense, the, um, apology in the classic term. And the idea is when you, when you encounter genuine love, it doesn't need a defense. It's its own defense. Mm. And so the thought then is, if all the, ma all the major Christian doctrines are doctrines of the love of God in Christ. And mm. so if you can kind of unpack them so people can see the, doc see, the, see the way in which the doctrines convey, and in some ways the only way it's conveyed is in these doctrines, the, um, the love of God in Christ, it's, it's a way of promoting an encounter, you know, with the face of the Lord, with, with his love, which is the face of the Lord, that, that uses arguments, but it goes beyond the arguments. And I'll give you an example, maybe one example, of the apologetics of love. So students lots of times and others think, maybe, you know, this religion, all you, you talk about love all the time, but it's just... Like, what about God as a judge? So you're so judgmental. Um, God's going to judge, and that doesn't sound like love to me. And in a sense, that's why I picked the example, because it seems like the opposite. So I, um, I try to show, I use the catechism, but I, use an, I have an analogy, which um, joke's on me in the analogy. But it's, it's like, say you, you know, you're a husband and a wife, and say you have an argument, um, and say, you know, after a while the wife is like, well, Okay, let's, you know, that was kind of silly, wasn't it? Just ridiculous. But the husband is like, you thought that was silly? That's not silly. It's an important point. And the longer that goes on with the wife saying, come on, it was really silly. And the guy saying, no, it wasn't. Who, it, who's becoming evidently the jerk in the scenario? Like, it's revealed who it is by, not because the wife is being judgmental, 
She's trying to avoid judgment. But because of the love that's being exhibited, the, re the truth of the situation comes clear, becomes clear. That's the last judgment, because only in the completely self-giving love of the passion of the Word made flesh can you see everything in its true reality. Mm. So actually, uh, the, the idea of the last judgment is a function of divine love, that it's the perfectly self-giving divine love which reveals the objective truth of everyone's actions. There's no intention to judge. I didn't come into the world to judge, Jesus right. says. Yeah. Hmm. And, and we're reminded, certainly in a Catholic economy, that God's first word spoken to the world is a word of love. Absolutely. Uh, approval, uh, not judgment, not condemnation. I was struck while you were talking by a, a scene from Dostoevsky, uh, the Grand Inquisitor episode, where uh, Jesus has nothing to say. He falls into a kind of silence, but it culminates in a kiss. And that monstrates a love for this grand inquisitor, which in the end totally disarms him. Uh, he's, he's consternated by that. I mean, love is its own defense. Love alone is credible. I mean, that's the title of the Balthazar book, which became the dress rehearsal for this massive uh, multi-volume uh, project, The Glory of the Lord. You don't need words. You, th this wordless gesture of love is enough. It's intrinsically attractive and compelling. You know, this is one of those places where I think we really have to overcome evangelical envy when it comes to the cross and the proclamation of the cross, because invariably you have all these different shades of interpretation that tend to go back to penal substitution. That when you look at the cross, you see the wrath of God. Yeah. You see the judgment of the Father misdirected, not against our sin, but his son, who's bearing the anger, you know, who's bearing the, the guilt, I should say. And, you know, suddenly there you have Jesus losing his life, you know, as an innocent, willing victim, and then the object or the brunt of this wrath. And, you know, the, the love and the inner life of the Trinity has somehow been suspended, contradicted. You know, it, it borders on the blasphemous. Yeah. But at the same time, it also borders on the incomprehensible until love illuminates that and you realize, wait a minute, he's not losing his life, he's giving it. The only way to make sense out of the execution is the Eucharist, where he initiates that life-giving love. And then suddenly you recognize, wait, dust off the icon, as you put it, and there you see not only the revelation of the inner life of the Trinity, which is life-giving love, but you see the communication of that through the breath, through the water, through the blood, through the gift of Our Lady as well. You know, and only within our tradition, and not always within our tradition. I remember rereading a book by Philippe de la Trinité, this Carmelite, who quotes passages from Bossuet. You'd think this was Luther describing, you know, the father raging against the son. It really did filter into Catholic, you know, uh, homiletics and that sort of thing. But nevertheless, I would say that this new evangelization and this new apologetic you know, they, they really converge in this right. love that is pure mystery, mm. but the love that is alone credible. Right, yeah. That, yeah. That's the whole ground, really, of, of incarnation and cross. This prior twofold love. This, the Father loves the Son, and, and so he'll send him into the world to suffer and die. But the Son is delighted to return the favor because his love of the Father uh, propels him uh, to, to march to the very limit of the finite. As John says, he loved them to the last. Yeah. I mean, that's how he shows his love. It's not vengeance. It's no. not rage. 
It's more like um, you, you can think you can think of the scene of the baptism in the Gospels, where um, Jesus, John, John the Baptist, protests because Jesus doesn't need baptism, as it were. He doesn't. He's sinless. And um, maybe if Jesus had a better career counselor, he wouldn't have jumped in that water. Because, <laughs> because it would have been like, did you see who went in that water? Yeah. Like, tax collectors and prostitutes yeah. went in that water. And you're going to jump in and people are going to think that, you, that you're a sinner. And it's like, okay, whatever. He jumps in. And why? Because he establishes solidarity with us as as sinners, not himself a sinner, right. but he enters into he doesn't have contempt for us as sinners. That's right. the point. He enters into solidarity, and he never he never backs away. Right. So the cross is the fact he did not back away. Yeah, mm. and the water doesn't add anything to him right. as it did for the tax collectors, right. yeah. prostitutes. But he adds something to the water, Absolutely. the sacramental capacity. You know, I think when we focus on divine condescension, we've got to complete the circuit. Yes, because you know, katabasis is not just God stooping down. Divine accommodation is not just I feel your pain. <laughs> it's also raising us up. You know, yes. there was an article I read recently that that love is not empathy. It's more. I should say empathy is not love. Uh, that, that love is not reducible to, I feel your pain. I mean, Jesus felt our pain more than we do. Right. But then it's like, I want you to feel our, our love, the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the only thing for which we made you. That's you know? the transformation. Like, it's almost too much good news, right. or it's and, too good to be I true. Think it was Bernard Lonergan, I think, who said, look, you're not saved by a preacher. Man. And, and Augustine, in his argument, his, his final battle against the Pelagians, said, look, here's the secret poison of your doctrine, that you think we're saved by the example of Jesus. We're saved by his person. Mm-hmm. He, the person goes yeah. all the way to the cross. He takes ownership of a sin he never committed mm-hmm. yeah. to atone for the sins we commit. <laughs> and he I mean, goes all the way to Hades. pretty amazing. You know? All the way to hell. And then he repopulates heaven with those who are <laughs> populating Hades. Yeah, so, that's so, good news. So kind of just going back, I, mean, I just love this concept of the apologetic of love. I mean, we're, we're, we're diving oh, okay. into it deep, but this is this is something that, that really needs to be married with and understood as part of the new evangelization. Um, uh, as you look at, at, at passing this on, as training the theologians, the priests, the, the lay, lay people, the, taking this apologetics for love, what is the um, uh, what can the church do in providing an image or an understanding in presenting this? Uh, to the world today, to our our generation, if you will. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What can the church do? Well, I I think of I think of two things together. I think of a renewed pedagogy of the basics. So, renewed pedagogy of the basics of the Christian faith through and the apologetics of love. And I, I think that a, a, we can we can sometimes think and of the doctrines of the faith as simply intellectual, whereas. So a renewed pedagogy of the basics would teach those doctrines, remembering that those are the mysteries of the faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people, if they don't know them, they can't hand them on. That's right. So, but then also, if they don't know what's at their heart, namely the love of God and Jesus Christ, not just any old love, L-U-V or whatever, but the love of God and Jesus Christ, yeah. then it won't matter to them that they hand it on. That's right. So the, we, we have to... In some ways, we have to keep returning to the to the basics of the Christian faith, but teach it in a way that people see it's not just mere information. Like the sun is ninety three million miles away from the Earth, and Indianapolis is the capital of Indiana, and what's the capital of Ohio? <laughs> Columbus. <laughs> the, the, Columbus. These aren't neutral 
Right. Idea. These aren't neutral intellectual Group ideas facts, like yeah, that. Right. These are mysteries. They, they change your whole life if you understand what's at the heart of them. Right. So that's both of those things, teaching them and then teaching what's at their heart. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I imagine just with the students and the, the, the PhD students or the, uh, you know, all the students that you work with, whether it be the institute or otherwise, I mean, that's part of probably all that you do in some level is, is this apologetic of love. It sounds more like a passion and a mission for you. Uh, and really, that's at the core of what uh, we need to have is that idea that uh, Paul VI, when I talked about teachers, teachers who are our, our first witnesses uh, to that as well as teachers, because they listen uh, to teachers because they are also witnesses. So that's the point of it's not just mere information. The teaching of doctrine got a bad rap because it was it sometimes maybe taught as though it were mere information. Right. Yeah. Whereas <clears throat> it's not, and therefore it's important, um, th therefore the person teaching it teaches it as a witness to it. If it's not just mere information, mm -hmm. if it's formative and even transformative, then the person teaching it is also bearing witness to it. You know, Origen says that the silence of Christ, that, that Christ is still silent in the midst of his accusers in the same book, Contra Kelsum, but that the, the, um, he speaks in the lives of his genuine disciples. So that the ultimate t t teaching of the basic mysteries of the faith is the witness that is born to it right. by, by yeah. the you know, in, in this Christ. argument he has, which is sustained over eight books, yeah. you've got two highly cultivated men, uh, and they're asking the same questions, but the answers are totally different. Mm. I mean, Celsus dismisses Christianity because it's not fastidious enough. You mean you're interested in outcasts, women, children, sinners? What's the, what's the matter with you? Yeah. And, and Origen insists that Christianity is not reducible to these ideas. It, it's not fixated on, on doctrine so much as a divine force that entered the world, and it offers salvation to everyone, not just some secret wisdom for a, a few select uh, uh, mortals. Absolutely. It's wonderfully promiscuous. I, I think of that, that line from Groucho Marx, I'd hate to belong to a club that would have somebody like me as a member. Well, Christianity is that club. I mean, it would even be willing to baptize Celsus. I mean, it, it doesn't have any standards at all. It'll take anybody. As long as you're a sinner, you, you ought to be on For board. For entry. Yeah, the but, point of entry. But in a certain sense, what's so beautiful about the faith and the logic of love is that the paupers and the lepers and the poor are all, in a certain sense, natural signs of our supernatural condition. That we are orphans, we're paupers, you know. And when we're reaching out to them, we're finding Christ, but Christ is also showing ourselves to us, you know. And it's like, it's scary, but it's like, whew, you know, these sages who are so proud of their intellects are themselves orphans and paupers, but don't know it. Yeah, I mean, if we were perfectly well-adjusted, then we wouldn't be attracted uh, to Christianity. <laughs> we have nothing to say. Augustine has a sermon on the, um, on the dog that begged, on, the, on Jesus, um, on the Syrophoenician woman telling right. Jesus that even a dog oh, yeah, you know, right. begs for crumbs. It's a beautiful sermon because during the sermon he's saying, basically I'm paraphrasing, you've got to get in touch with your inner dog. <laughs> 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 the, the neediness that, that is you. Rough, rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. Stay with us for the final segment on Franciscan University Presents. Teaching theology uh, here at Franciscan is certainly about the communication of 
of information, uh, deepening our understanding, the students' understanding of the faith. But one of the wonderful things when you're teaching students who come with faith and who believe uh, the gospel is that your, your teaching can become then also the occasion for growth in communion with the Lord. It's no less academic, uh, no less intellectual, but, but when you bring, when the students bring and the teachers bring faith, it changes the equation, so to speak, so that uh, for actually for all of us uh, to teach it and to learn it becomes uh, a more spiritual experience also. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking with Dr. John Cavadini about the new evangelization. Uh, it's our final segment. Uh, Regis, could you start us off? Yeah. Gosh, John, uh, I'm no end of grateful uh, for your coming here to talk to us. Uh, it, it's been very exciting. Uh, and uh, the essay that you wrote was, uh, was really a, a drop-everything uh, essay. It was eye-catching uh, and, and provocative and wonderfully rich uh, and incisive. Uh, and it tells me, it reminds me that this is what theology is about. I mean, Balthazar nailed it when he described it as a consuming fire the splendor of theology, and, and it burns bright uh, in the dark night of both adoration uh, and obedience. It's a kind of movement in between those, those two poles, mm -hmm. those two bookends. And he even, he even assigns uh, uh, saints uh, for each of those moments. The moment of adoration is really symbolized by John, the author of the fourth gospel, you know, the, the clear-eyed eagle who saw more deeply into the things of God than any man living. I mean, he's fixated uh, on the face of, of Christ. But then there's obedience. You know, you've got to pick up your cross. You can't just continue gaping forever. You've got work to do. And Ignatius of Loyola, I, I think, is the preferred saint for that, uh, that mode, that dimension, the dimension of obedience. But, but never for a single instant uh, can the theologian forget his roots. This is what nourishes us, uh, uh, the faith. Uh, and it's rooted in adoration like the shepherds uh, who were arrested by that, by that chorus of angels and drawn uh, to the Christ child, uh, but also uh, 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 the apostles who take up uh, the task, the cross, and, and carry it in the wake of, of Jesus, uh, their obedience. And together, I think that represents the splendor of theology and, and your life, uh, your work is, is certainly a, a, a beautiful expression of that, uh, that ideal. Yeah. Mm. So thanks so much mm. for being faithful. Mm. Thanks, Regis. Scott. You know, this idea of the apologetics of love, you know, you mentioned a few minutes ago that we're, we're, we, we're, we've 
and diving deeply into it. I don't think we have been. I think we're about four or five feet <laughs> underwater. I, I think that the subterranean depth of this, you know, the, the, the depths are really a lot more than we've discovered so far. Um, I, I want to continue the embarrassment um, that Regis initiated because I'm so grateful for what you're doing in the Department of Theology at Notre Dame, what you did as chair, what you did for my oldest son in helping form him in the doctoral program. Uh, it's not just you know apologetics of love. It's it's the way it's delivered. You know, it's it's nice to remember that we're saved by Christ, not Christology. But once yeah. you remember that, then Christology takes on a greater depth, and everything else does too, because it's all traced back to the love that saves us. And this apologetic of love, you know, even suffering and death become meaningful. But no. Suffering and death especially become meaningful because then suddenly, you know, we all have to die. But God has stooped down to make it something at least potentially glorious and, and deifying if we allow him to have his way, you know, as we're, as we're losing it all seemingly. You know, and so I just want to kind of say, keep on keeping on with this <laughs> apologetic of love. And, uh, and I will be hitting you up for a book here soon because this is not going to be a minor monograph. I mean, this is going to be a considerable amount of study and I think uh, a, a baton or a torch that we pass on to the next generation of scholars. Yeah, excellent. Uh, John. Well, uh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very humbled by these comments. I um, have been edified continuously by the example of your university and the kind of pedagogy that it has embodied for years and years. And I've been trying to learn also by listening. <laughs> um, so I'm very honored myself to be here. Um, thank you for your kind words. I'm going to maybe sum up by thinking of a, another passage from Origin, which I'm sorry I'm not going to be able to, to, um, to, to quote from memory properly, but it, it is the passage in, the, in his text on first principles where I alluded to it, where he talks about uh, the divine nature of the Son of God is astonishing. Uh, is, uh, one isn't able to, to speak about it adequately. One isn't able to think about it adequately. But then he goes on to say that the most, the most astonishing thing that surpasses even the capacity for human wonder is that a being of such towering majesty would have entered into the womb of a woman and been born as a little child uttering crying noises just like those of any other children, thereby, by the way, invoking the mystery of Mary at the same time. Yes. Um, and he goes on to say that, um, then this I think is my motto, my motto passage for theologians, and I use it this way, that um, therefore it means that we have to pursue our contemplation, our theological contemplation in awe and fear and trembling uh, at so mighty a mystery, he says, because he doesn't think the, the apostles were, were adequate even at expressing it, and that even the angels, it surpasses their powers of expression. Yeah, yeah. And so that, therefore, the theologian is in the presence of something so, so beautiful and so sacred that we have to speak, we have to speak, but we have to speak in a way that somehow is a witness to that awesome beauty of the mystery of God's condescension into Mary's womb. Mm. Mm. Yeah, a, a sacredly terrifying mystery, uh, it's been called. Yeah. You know, yeah. Theology is not just fides, querens, and electum, faith seeking understanding. There is that sense of uh, fides, adorans, mysterium. 
that we have to begin yeah. by adoring the mystery, and then we can rise from our knees right. and do something valuable. And Scott, what a great line that was. <laughs> we're, we're saved by Christ, not by Christology. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's, good That's humbling. That's great. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> ben the 16th has that beautiful image, and God is love. This is part of the apologetics of love, that encyclical, um, where, where he talks about how the whole encyclical arises from a contemplation of the pierced heart of Christ hanging dead on the cross, so John 19. So it that's, goes back to Scripture in a sense, but what we're contemplating is the image that Scripture offers us. So unpack the image and let it live in the Catholic imagination. Mm -hmm. yeah, and you know, so much of, of that work was prompted by his reading of Dante. Mm -hmm. And there's Dante looking into the heart of God, and that. he's stupefied by this vision, and he feels like a geometer trying to square the circle. It, it can't be done. The mystery is impenetrable, but then he's taken possession by that mystery, and he ends by saying, love is what moves the heavens and the stars and the planets. So beautiful. Mm, yeah. mm, mm. John, thank you for being with us. Yes, uh, thank this you. was a great topic to go uh, even deeper into the new evangelization, and there's so much more. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's program, we do have a, uh, a great handout here. We've been talking about it a little bit uh, during the program, but uh, a new apologetic uh, for the new evangelization by Dr. John Cavadini. You can get it at faithandreason.com or just for asking. Um, as we, as we wrap up and, and look forward, uh, taking all of this and recognizing that, that really it comes down to you can't love that which you don't fully know. And that our desire to understand God will always fall short. But, but it, whether you're a preacher, or a teacher, whether you're a, a doctor or a PhD, as we have here today, or you're a lay Catholic, we need to deepen our knowledge and love of the mystery of God and really be in awe of that so that our hearts can be filled because ultimately from knowledge to love uh, to self-gift because that is the, the idea that we have as, as Catholics, as missionary disciples is to fall more deeply in love with Christ so that we can be sent out into the world because our world is in great need of transformation uh, through the power of Christ. Um, we want to invite you to be a part of Franciscan University's mission. Uh, we want to invite you to maybe come and, and take classes with some of uh, the professors like this here uh, on our campus in Steubenville or through our online programs. Uh, or join us at our, our engaging and inspiring summer conferences or, or join with us on pilgrimages to holy shrines and sites around the world. Or join us just at faithandreason.com where you can get more from uh, Dr. John Cavadini and so many others to be equipped for the new evangelization. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.